Hey friends, thanks so much for tuning in to the SGT Report podcast. Hey, before we start, just a reminder, every single day for free, you can visit us directly for real news at mysitesthephaser.com and sgtreport.com. Before we start this one about strategies to demolish medical tyranny, just a quick word about our sponsor. You know, it's almost 2023, and if there's anything 2022 taught us, it's that inflation is here. Things are far more expensive now than they were at the beginning of the year. But it's not too late to protect yourself. And despite the fact that there's always a risk of loss and past performance is not indicative of future results, thousands of people have retired comfortably with the help of Noble Gold Investments and their precious metal IRAs. If you're one of the people, like me, who believe gold and silver is an excellent hedge against inflation and total collapse, now's the time to act. Talk to an expert member of Noble Gold's team today. And if you get in before the end of this month, you'll get an incredible free 3-ounce Silver American Virtue coin with every qualified IRA of $20,000 or more. You can't go wrong with Noble Gold Investments. So call the team now at 877-646-5347 to find out more or visit noblegoldinvestments.com. Hey friends, Sean from SGT Report here. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Guys, I've got a very important update here for you today. We're going to give you the tools you need to fight back against mask tyranny and vaccine tyranny. I've got a special broadcast here courtesy of Truth for Health in their legal symposium. Before we get to that, I want to welcome my guest, Dr. Lee Leet. How are you, Doc? Hi, Sean. It's great to be with you again. Thank you. And this will this is really something important for your listeners to know. We've got some great strategies for you to use to fight back against medical tyranny. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on and helping me tease this legal symposium. It's a conversation between uh, Dr. Warner Mendenhall and Todd Callender. And before we get to that, I just want to set the stage here with current news and then share that personal anecdote uh, of my experience recently regarding masks. So here's what's going on, friends. As you all know, the mainstream horror media is talking about the return of the mask, right? As COVID-19 and RSV spread. So the propaganda is thick. Philadelphia schools to reinstate mask mandate after winter break. These people, as I've said before, they're never going to stop coming after our children. Masks are horrible. The science is clear, and Dr. Vliet can weigh in on that. Here's another line item. Mask mandates may return again as COVID cases climb. More propaganda. Guys, they're not going to stop. Even Pasadena, of course, California, mulling mask mandate. It's absolute insanity. Doc, can you just tell us about the science here of masks and how ridiculous they are? And then I'm going to share my personal story that uh, some of the audience knows about. Absolutely. Sean, the ma- using these masks, the surgical mask and cloth mask, is like using a chain link fence to stop a mosquito. The viruses are so small in their particle size that they get through the pores of the mask anyway. So it doesn't stop a viral respiratory illness. What the masks do actually is predominantly harmful. They drop your oxygen, increase carbon dioxide, which makes you foggy brained and causes headaches and fatigue and difficulty thinking. One of the worst things you can do to children in school. And they have found clearly, the science shows unequivocally, that wearing a mask all day contributes to multiple health problems, including more respiratory illness because you're recirculating bacteria from your upper airway, nose and mouth, and you're breathing it into the lungs. So it's actually damaging medically. It's damaging to children psychologically. We're showing delayed developmental milestones. We're showing children that can't function in school properly. Their social development is delayed. They don't see people's faces. Children have trouble learning new vocabulary if they can't read lips. I mean, all the way around, it is a devastating, dangerous, and destructive impact, especially on children in school. 
Well, there's so much gaslighting going on revolving around this particular issue. And let me just share my personal anecdote. So I had to walk into a health partner's urgent care clinic in the Twin Cities at 11.30 a.m. Central Time on December 14th to pick up my son who had been brought there by his restaurant employer. He'd cut his finger in the kitchen. He needed four stitches. So I walked in to pick the boy up. I identified myself as his father and uh, explained why I was there at the front desk of urgent care. And the woman was polite. She handed me a mask and said, well, you have to put this on and wait over there. And I said, well, I don't do that anymore. I don't wear masks. They're ineffective. In fact, they're dangerous. And I will not take part in this theater any longer. And she got a little belligerent with me. And she said, sir, you either put the mask on or you cannot be in here. And I said, well, I'm staying and I'm not wearing that thing. I'm not putting the face diaper over my face. I'm not doing the theater anymore. And she said, sir, either you put the mask on or you leave or we call the police. And I said, well, call the police then because I am not engaging in this theater any longer. So Dr. Vliet, let me ask you, as part of the gaslighting, imagine my shock to walk into something called Health Partners. It's the only place on earth, these hospitals and these urgent cares, these clinics, it's the only place still doing the theater. You don't have to wear a mask at the airport, on an airplane, nowhere else is this theater still happening. So explain to me what I should have said to this crazy woman. And, and by the way, her supervisor then came out and got in my face and it was becoming a thing. It was getting heated. And it's just shocking to me. Well, it's shocking to me, too. And certainly health partners as a medical facility should understand that the masks are not protective against viral illnesses. So that's point number one. Point number two a health facility is a place of public accommodation and you have the right to cite the Americans with Disability Act. And quite frankly, the mask can contribute to disability, but that's beside the point. The key point is that anyone can simply say, under the Americans with Disability Act, I have a disability and I cannot wear a mask. And any place that serves the public has to accommodate you under the law or they risk major fines. Sometimes it can be $75,000 or more depending on the, the facility. So that is a simple statement. Those who want to avoid a confrontation can simply say, I have a disability and under the ADA, I am not required to wear a mask and you're required to accommodate that and allow me access to a public place. Mm. If okay. they press you and say, well, what's wrong with you? You don't look disabled, which they could do. You simply say, may I get that on record and hold up your phone and ask me that question again for the record, please. And they are not allowed to ask you under the ADA what your disability is, they are required to provide accommodation, which, which our attorneys, Warner Mendenhall and Todd Callender, participated in our legal symposium. And the three of us were discussing this. And you're going to share that legal interview with your audience so that they understand what the law says and what their rights are and how simple it is to cite the Americans with Disability Act. Well, that's right. And we're going to play this Truth for Health Legal Symposium Strategies for Overcoming Tyranny in just one minute. Okay, guys, stay tuned for that because it will equip you with the knowledge and the data, the facts you need to combat this tyranny because the mask mandates, they're going to come back, especially in these demo rat controlled areas, states and cities. And so are the vaccine mandates probably at some point again, in those Democrat controlled areas of our country. But uh, let me just say one last thing, doctor. When I asked this woman to show me the law, she said, well, it's our policy. And I said, well, I don't care what your policy is with all due respect, show me the law. They can't cite the law because it's unlawful. So they fall back on their policies. And that's really the first step of tyranny, isn't it? Their policy? Well, what if their policy was for me to put a plastic bag over my head and suffocate myself? Should I obey that policy? Again, it's where do we draw the line here? Because they need our compliance, Dr. Vliet. I'll give you the last word. They, they do need our compliance and the policy is unlawful. And 
everyone needs to understand the only way to stand against this medical tyranny that is out of control across America is peaceful non-compliance and know your legal rights, which is why Truth for Health Foundation put on the legal symposium. You have legal rights, which you can cite. And it just simply takes being assertive and don't let yourself be pushed around. Stand up against tyranny. And then we all can live in freedom again as God and our founders intended. Amen. Guys, stay tuned. I'm about to play for you strategies for overcoming tyranny after this quick word from our sponsor, Dr. Leavely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. God bless. Guys, just a quick break here with a word from our sponsor. Well, 2022 has shown us what might be coming in the future, and it's more inflation and possibly a very, very bad recession. It's time to take action, and despite the fact that any investment can lose money and past performance is no indication of future results, a precious metals IRA using tax-advantaged gold and silver to keep inflation at bay might just be what you need to give yourself protection from financial nightmares. And you'll get a stunning free 3-ounce Silver American Virtue coin when you open up a qualifying IRA account this month. You can't go wrong with Noble Gold Investments. So call 877-646-5347 to find out more or just visit noblegoldinvestments.com. The link is directly below. Let's just jump right into this. Um, In terms of establishing a disability claim, let's go through the steps that it takes uh, for someone to establish that disability claim. Sure. What I wanted to impart first and foremost is for people to understand the depth and breadth of disability. It is uh, now covered by five separate UN conventions. It's international in nature. So what we talk about in terms of disability in the United States is more or less the same in every country in the world uh, because everybody's signed on to these. And so the the single most important thing about uh, disability is to understand how does one avail themselves to it. And even the WHO, Tedros himself now says, disability is so broadly defined that it encompasses loss of consortium, if you can imagine that. So the test is really, uh, to put it in a very pragmatic way, practically any malady that affects a, a substantial bodily function that persists for six months or more. Breathing, blood flow, um, frankly, consortium use of your bio or your your reproductive organs, all of that could in fact be a disability if it, if it persists for that period of time. So the single most important thing is for people to be on notice that you are disabled because it may not be apparent. So all of the rights one might enjoy under the Americans with Disabilities Act or the the other component, it's got a sister statute called the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. That applies to government uh, discrimination under either one because they're more or less the same statute. Notice is the single most important thing. So if you have a a disability um, and it's been diagnosed because you're gonna have to prove that in all likelihood, um, then you have to let whoever it is that is either discriminating against you or you think might discriminate against you, you have to put them on notice that you are availing yourself to the ADA or the Rehab Act. That's the first step. Well, one of the things that I've been very interested in this process, too, is something called the regarded as portion of disability. Could you explain that a little bit as well? Sure. The statute actually talks about that and and says it's an either or test. Either you put the the person that's discriminating or about to discriminate against you on notice verbally or in writing. Uh, Again, evidence is important. So if you do it verbally, you should have some recording of it. Um, But the the regarded as, the statute effectively states that it may be apparent. So if somebody's walking into, um, you know, let's say Target, for example, I like to pick on them because uh, they picked on me. So if you walk into Target and you've got a cane, then it is obvious to them and others that you suffer a disability. And on that basis, it satisfies that notice criteria. So it's an either or test. Either you let them know that you're availing yourself because you're disabled or that your disability is obvious to any third party onlooker. One of the things that I've seen uh, is that, especially in the hospital setting, that they regard the uh, folks who have not had a shot as a threat 
to the patients and to other uh, people in the hospital. I, I've been confused by that a little bit, especially since, you know, now we know even if you've had the shot, you're, you know, you're carrying, you can carry the illness uh, with you and spread the illness. And, and uh, but, but do you think that the regarded as can play a part in that type of situation where someone is regarded as being a threat and that that can be a disability as well? Yeah, it, it's absolutely absurd, actually. You know, we've had a number of clients that, for instance, went to the hospital for an organ transplant. They are obviously disabled, right? Or they wouldn't be there for an organ transplant. And nonetheless, on a wholesale basis, hospitals have, have discriminated against people, and they're effectively disallowing them regarded as. And it's kind of a catch-up thing where it is true, and the statute does protect you, um, but what it does is, is create a lot of, uh, of timing lapse to occur. So what we've done uh, to remedy that is make sure that our, our clients who are patients of a hospital notify them in advance. I am availing myself to the ADA or the Rehab Act. And on that basis, I um, am owed a surgery that you promised, irrespective of my vaccine status. And there are other protections in there that, that kind of fold in and too, is in so much as your, your disability is protected by the ADA. So it becomes a little bit of a, of a strange scenario where the hospital has all of your medical records. Clearly, they know you're disabled. But until such time as somebody actually says those magic words, you know, I'm disabled, um, a lot of times the rights won't fully attach. So we, we always prefer for our clients to, to let them know that they're aware of the law and they are invoking it. What about a nurse who hasn't had the shot, though, as well? And I'm fascinated by the transplant issue. Um, but what about a nurse who hasn't had the shot and the administration of the hospital says, well, you can't work here anymore because you haven't had the shot, even though they may have uh, survived COVID and, and have full immunity for that? Is it possible for that nurse to use the regarded as part, part of the Americans with Disabilities Act? Well, if, if that person is in fact disabled in some fashion, but if the nurse is serving in her role and doesn't appear to be disabled or hasn't invoked her rights under it, the answer is, is probably not. Uh, however, there may be other laws that interplay. So for instance, uh, fairly recently, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act has come up. It is also um, protected by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, both federal and in the states. And my contention is that, um, you cannot genetically discriminate against somebody who didn't get the shots because the shots cause gene modification. They are changing your genome. So we've been kind of playing with that in our legal opinions uh, lately. But the, the easiest thing is for such a nurse to, um, to have a diagnosis of some kind of a disability. Mental also includes. So, um, and, and have that documentation and say, no, look, I'm availing myself to the ADA. And uh, for that reason, you cannot discriminate against me. There's also a case that, that talks about this in, in a slightly different way. It's called Darby v. Childvine. It was a uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals case whereby it seems to apply prospective protections to people. The, the holding in the case indicates that you can't discriminate against, you can't require an act uh, of somebody that will cause them, prospectively will cause them a change in their quote unquote normal cell growth. That phrase appears in the statute itself, by the way. So anything that interferes with normal cell growth would be the basis for it. In fact, we often opine as such. You can't force my client to take the shot because the shots cause abnormal cell growth. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating uh, idea to bring in the GINA Act, and I think we ought to avail ourselves of that in our cases. Um, so if someone has a, a disability, um, what, what do they need to do to get protection under the ADA? Well, the, fir the first thing is notice. So, uh, it, you can be disabled and you don't have to have proof of it to the, to the rest of the world in order to invoke the act. However, if it's a contentious situation and somebody says, well, you don't look disabled and then they discriminate anyway, you know, you've got to file the complaint with the EEOC, again, state or federal. And then the investigator is going to say, okay, what, you know, what's the nature of your disability and how is it that you seek or need 
what's called uh, reasonable accommodation, whether that's public accommodation, meaning if you're going into a business that's open to the public, they can't discriminate against you either. It's not just employment. But so you're going to have to be able to prove your case. And that's why we tend to send people uh, to a doctor or, or look at their records as they are. Having said that, nobody gets to ask you what your disability is. The only thing they can really ask you there's a, an exception to that, and I'll talk to that in a minute. The only thing they can ask you is, how do we accommodate you? So, Warner, if you're walking into Target and you say, you know, it's ADA, I'm not wearing my mask, um, you know, typically they will apologize and scurry away. However, the smart ones would say, well, Warner, Mr. Mendenhall, what, how, how is it we can accommodate you today? And, and your response, if it was relating to a mask, is I, I need not wear a mask. You know, I, I need to breathe normally. And that is actually guaranteed. Normal breathing is guaranteed under the statute. So um, it, the, the one place where you may actually have to demonstrate your disability, in addition to the EEOC, if you file a complaint, um, is in relation to employment. So if you were being discriminated against by an employer, let's, let's take this nurse, for example. And the administrator of the hospital says, okay, you know, uh, Miss, Miss Jane, uh, how is it we can accommodate you? Uh, and, and she says, well, you know, I need to not take a shot. Then they would be able to ask, as it relates to the employment only, you know, what malady do you suffer such that you need an, an exemption from this shot? And believe it or not, we've actually um, used prior history for people having allergies, for example, to polyethylene glycol. That's in the shots. 70-something per percent of the people on this planet are, in fact, allergic polyethylene glycol. So that could be your basis. Um, it's important, though, to have some evidence to back that up because they'll certainly ask. Well, that's really interesting. So 70% of us are, are allergic to polyethylene glycol. I imagine that would be a fairly simple test to figure out if you have that allergy. Even history. So the doctors that we use, and one of them is a board certified allergist, will simply take a patient history. They oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, they, they use telehealth. So they will speak to the person and they'll get a history and ask questions along the lines of, you know, have you ever used this kind of shampoo? And because polyethylene glycol is in a lot of products, um, topical products. This is the first time that anybody's ever injected polyethylene glycol to people. And by the way, that's the base chemicals for antifreeze, right? It is poison. In fact, the, uh, the safety data sheet states that it's poison, but nonetheless, the shots have them. And so the, um, the history by the physician or healthcare practitioner, it doesn't necessarily have to be a medical doctor uh, for purposes of diagnosis, can actually arrive at that conclusion simply by a history. Uh, you know, have you had skin problems? Have you ever had X, Y, or Z? And that's good enough for them to diagnose it. Wow. And then once it's filed with the EEOC, what have you found the uh, reaction of the investigators to be uh, on these disability claims? And on the whole, I have to say it's pretty good. You know, they, the EEOC has the uh, jurisdiction to investigate all kinds of discrimination, gender, race, age, uh, malady, in this case, disability. And they have a very short statute of limitations. Sometimes it's, in fact, most of the time, it's 180 days. I've seen it as little as 90 days. So if somebody has suffered that discrimination, it's imperative that they file that complaint as fast as they can. And then the state, they can file either in the state or in the federal. Federal ones tend to be fairly backlogged because there's a lot of discrimination going on right now. But the state investigators, uh, they'll turn around a, a request fairly quickly, certainly within a month or two, They'll contact whoever it was that was discriminating, whether that was a, a public place or an employer, and they'll get their side of the story. And at this point, it's very important for those who've been discriminated against to have evidence because you, you're going to have to prove your claim at least enough for a probable cause. The, the penalties, the administrative fines and remedies are actually very significant, and they depend in large part by how many employees that company has, whoever it was that was discriminating. And the fines you know, tend to start in the $50,000 range and can go up from there. So most of the time, what you will find is the investigators will contact whoever it was that was discriminating and they'll look to find a way to settle this, the investigator themselves. They'll ask the complainant, you know, what is it you're after? Is, is it that you just want to go into this business and not be harassed? Is it you just want to keep your job? And, and they'll almost mediate it in some respects. 
And then, um, because a lot of this can be settled simply with an apology and an accommodation. If it goes past that, you know, there is a process by which it's all investigated and eventually it will get to a mediation and then eventually some kind of adjudication in the administrative process. And um, I have to say, on the whole, they do a fairly good job of this. And the form that they use is what's called a Form 5, correct? And that has to be notarized, in my understanding. Yeah, it depends on where you're filing it. The answer is yes. And, and a lot of states actually have these forms online. And you can go to the state EEOC and just file it online. And the individual can do that, and they need to make sure they're they're checking it may be beyond just the ADA. So if they have some other claim, a religious claim or, or whatever other type of discrimination, they should fully flesh out what those claims are, correct? Th this is true. However, in, in the context of COVID, we have found that, that there is rampant discrimination even inside the EEOCs, the various ones. They simply are not upholding uh, the laws as it relates to religious discrimination. I don't understand why we've seen it in the military. We've seen it throughout our government um, more than anywhere else. So I tend to advise people to go to the mat on the ADA because the, the religious discrimination, I think there are so many of them that they're just not taken seriously. And, they, and they're fairly subjective, right? Somebody says, I have a sincerely held religious belief. How does one test that? And, and sometimes they'll ask, you know, where do you go to church? Or how long have you had this? Um, versus Americans with Disabilities Act or the Rehabilitation Act is, is fairly objective. Do you have a disability that is defined or not? And on that note, when looking at the ADA, there was a significant adjustment in 2008, an amendment to the ADA to broaden the scope. So when the ADA first came out, the, um, the Supreme Court's heard three cases on discrimination and they kept narrowing and narrowing the definition of discrimination. And finally, the legislature came back and said, no, 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 you got this wrong. It, it must be broadly applied as broadly and liberally as is possible. And again, this is international. So please look at the 2008 amendments to the ADA. And, and, and frankly, the Re Rehabilitation Act of 1973 draws on the definitions of disabled under the ADA 2008 amendment. Wow. Um, I want to cycle back. Uh, so the, the, uh, if somebody wants to hire an attorney to do this, um, and to assist them through this process, you know, what does that, what can that attorney do for the client? It's the same thing as they would be doing themselves in, in many respects. Sometimes you will find the EEOC will take the case a little bit more seriously if the lawyer enters their appearance in the very beginning, but you have to exhaust your administrative remedies first. So what typically happens is you file with the EEOC, they do an investigation if they find that there's been discrimination, particularly egregious discrimination, then they'll actually fine um, the employer or the, or the public utility. If not, uh, if they decide to do nothing or the mediation fails, then they'll issue a letter that effectively it's a right to sue. It, it, it means that you have gone through the administrative process. You didn't get a remedy there that was satisfactory to you. And now you have permission to sue them in court. Uh, it, it's less a matter of permission. It's now that you don't have to worry about getting dismissed for failure to have gone through the administrative process. And that's really where lawyers tend to come in. There's not a lot that, that we could do as lawyers um, that they couldn't do themselves in the admin other than helping them frame their case. We would look at such a, case, a claim seriously and have our evidence in order and make that case as though we were going to court to the admin people. Um, and I think that's helpful. But somebody who's studious can do that on their own. We have noticed in Ohio that because of the backlog, things are not moving. And what, what we have started to do here, maybe you've had this, a similar experience. Sometimes if a case needs to move, we'll simply get it, you know, help the client file it. And then we'll immediately call the agency sure. and they'll, they'll issue that right to sue immediately. There's no waiting at all. They'll issue it like within hours sometimes because they want to clear their backlogs. That is true. Um, all of that is so. I, I like for people to go through the process if they can, because I find that when the EEOC investigators show up on the doorstep uh, of whoever the, that's discriminating, a lot of times the, the bad behavior will be rectified immediately. 
And so for most of the time, our clients just want the resolution. They want the solution. They want the accommodation. They're not after damages. Um, and in that case, it's easier just to use the state for the very purpose that it's designed. Others, um, as you indicate, yeah, they want damages. They, they want to send a, a very clear message. And you're absolutely right. If you talk to the investigators, they're happy to clear it off their desk. Yeah. Let's talk about the different categories where you could apply it. Is, is this something uh, we've, we've already talked about the, uh, you know, the transplant situation and you, and you think that's a good statute to use if you need a transplant because you're already disabled and right. you're asking the hospital as a place of public accommodation to accommodate your need, correct? Yeah, in, in fact, out of all the discrimination that we've seen, the worst of it has come from doctors and hospitals. And, and it's so it's so appalling, too, because I know, uh, you know, people are failing. I mean, their organs are failing. They need this transplant and any delay really could kill the person. And I've, I have several situations I've seen like that. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah. yeah. In fact, in fact it, what's the, the worst, what's most egregious about it when it relates to doctors and hospitals is they know exactly as you said that the circumstances are dire and yet they're almost, you know, not suffied in the way that they approach this, that they are punishing people for refusing to get these shots, for refusing to wear the mask or do the stupid test. Until such time as you demonstrate to the, particularly the hospital administrators, um, that these, these masks are emergency use, right? They're experimental, they're, they're investigative new devices, as are the tests, as are the shots. Until you put them on notice, that their conduct is, is highly illegal and it will subject them to fines, then they, uh, they play dictator. And, and frankly, it's one of my favorite things is to beat up on hospitals for discrimination. And let's talk about another area, say education. We've had, a, you know, a lot of students are, are, you know, coming under mandates and requirements from the various universities. Can the ADA apply in a university context? <laughs> Absolutely. I, probably a third, if not more, of our clients are students in, in colleges or, or regular public schools. The public schools tend to understand the ADA better. Uh, it's the, the colleges that, uh, again, they, I don't I imagine their funding must be based on their vaccination rates or something like that because they are absolutely terrorists when it comes to enforcing ADA rules. But we've won Oh, I couldn't even tell you hundreds of exemptions for, for people, including, you know, a whole lot of students, my own daughter, for example. Yeah, it's just, it's been stunning what the colleges and the schools have done. Um, there have been a lot of, I mean, getting onto the ADA, the masking issue has seemed to be a really intense issue for the school boards. You know, parents yeah. have just not wanted their kids to mask. Right. They're forcing it, especially through the buses. You may know about that situation as well. Um, but the parents are astounded. And we have we have uh, seen situations where a child maybe has a verbal or a hearing handicap. And sure. the masking, you know, to me seems totally destructive and, and uh, very damaging to the children when they can't see the teacher's lips move, for example. Have you yeah. seen situations like that? Oh, dear Lord, yes. Uh, in fact, the whole thing, again, is absurd. You know, we've got a lot of doctors, Dr. Vliet included, that advise us who will tell you that the, the pathogens are some 1.5 microns wide. The very best N95 mask you can get in the hospital is a 15 micron filter. It's like trying to hold out the tide in the ocean with a chain link fence. It's absurd. And beyond that, you know, unless this mask is specifically designed for that purpose, like the N95 mask, then every other one is necessarily an investigative new device under the FDA regulations. So I like to approach school boards on that basis. Number one, it's stupid. Number two, informed consent rights apply because this is an investigative new device. You don't get to mandate it. And then lastly, you're absolutely right. Disability comes in on top for, you know, forcing somebody to breathe their, their own waste exhaust can cause a disability and abnormal cell growth. They're protected by the ADA. Mm. I, I want to go back where you started a little bit with the military. Um, how are the military, uh, how do you use disability uh, rights in the military to, to deal with this? Uh, yeah. 
requirement of a shot? Well, it's a, it's a great question because it's not so straightforward as everybody else. The military was specifically exempted from the tenements of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. However, our government signed on to five separate UN conventions on the rights of the disabled. So the federal government itself has made these commitments, and I remind the military of that. Um, and the Defense Health Agency actually has a form, a, an accommodation form. And so we've won a whole lot of accommodations in the military simply doing that. We advise our, our service member, fill out this DHA form, uh, get your doctor to sign it, even though there's no space for that. We create one. The doctor signs it as though they've, they've done their diagnosis because they have. And then we pr provide that to the DHA and, and then to the, the person's commanding officer and let them know that um, they're making uh, a reasonable accommodation request based on their disability. And, and frankly, the, the DOD in some respects kind of injures themselves in this regard because they keep such meticulous records on people's disability and health. You know, a lot of times service members get out probably more often than not, they leave the military disabled and the military itself will assign a disability rating. So even though they're not captured by the statute itself, they are captured by the spirit of the statute and the commitments that the government made internationally. What, so what are those five, um, what are these five agreements or are they treaties? Is that what they yes. are? Yes, okay. they're treaties, they're multilateral treaties. It starts in 1976 with a covenant on social, economic and cultural rights. In that convention, the, uh, the party signatory there, too, agreed that there are two classes of protected people on this planet more than anybody else on the planet, the disabled and the indigenous. There are four or actually five progeny uh, uh, treaties that come out from that, and they uh, include the, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous and includes the, the rights of the disabled. So you would find that the treaty partners oftentimes simply adopt the model treaty. Uh, however, the rights of the disabled appear in a lot of UN conventions because the disabled are more protected than just about anybody else on this planet. And everybody that signed onto those treaties must have the same laws. They have to have the exact same protections in their statutes, and they do. It's the exact same law all around the world, and it's one of the reasons I practice international disability law. Tell us about that a little bit. I'm not sure I understand what how you get into an international practice of disability law. Yeah. What, what, are, what are you doing there? People move, mm -hmm. right? People go between countries. The discrimination doesn't stop just because they're in a different country and their rights attach. So somebody who has a disability in the United States and they go to another country, Germany or anywhere else, um, and, and that discrimination happens there too, they are still availed to the very same tenements of law because they're in the trees. That means that the Germans or whoever else have the exact same provisions in law. And, and frankly, throughout this whole COVID nonsense, we've done a lot of work helping people just simply travel. So for instance, the United States has made this absolutely absurd uh, policy, it's not a law, that non-Americans entering the United States by a commercial vehicle have to be vaccinated. If you walk across the border, that's fine. You don't have to have the stupid gene modification experimental shots. In fact, they'll give you ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine at the border. But if you fly in a commercial airplane, um, then, then they will not let you on the aircraft until such time as you prove your vaccination status. However, because of this law is international and everybody has it, when somebody leaves their, their country, let's say the Caribbean and going to the United States, we have a diagnosis by a licensed physician, either there or here. And then we simply inform the air carrier uh, or the boat and say, look, this person's availed to the, the very same rights in this country and that country. You cannot discriminate. And sure enough, they don't. They know that they're going to get fined. That is a huge problem uh, with, with folks. And I'm not sure people understand this international travel issue. We have a lot of people who want to come to the United States but don't want to have the shot. So what would someone have to do in that situation? Uh, just get, let's say, a diagnosis that they're uh, allergic to the peg? Yeah, so we actually have doctors that will do that. You know, the, the reality of the situation, Warner, is that most people on this planet have a disability. 
The definition is so broad, irrespective of allergies to the PEG, it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is. What matters is that you are disabled and that you're seeking a reasonable accommodation. That accommodation is I don't want to take the shot. So start with disability first. Um, it's effectively this, the same test in every country. So whether that's a, a doctor where you're at at the time before you enter the United States, or it could be a U.S. doctor through telehealth. One way or another, a licensed physician arrives at the conclusion that you are exempt from the shots for whatever purpose. And that becomes binding on all parties who receive notice that you are disabled, that they must provide a reasonable accommodation, particularly the air carriers. Um, and we do it all day, every day. We, our firm issues a legal opinion on the subject matter. And we typically have a local lawyer sign along with me as a U.S. Uh, attorney but it's not necessary. A lot of times the air carriers will simply take a doctor's note all by itself. Well, let me ask you this. I happen to know that the consulates, the American consulates want you to come in with, um, you know, with a verification that you've had the shot and that's part of your medical review to travel. So how, how do you get around that? Do you, do you, you mean go- for purposes of, of a visa, for example? Yeah, for purposes yeah. of a visa, yeah. Same thing. The the same law applies in this particular case because it's a governmental entity doing the discrimination. It's the the applicable law is the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And you simply um, have your diagnosis, even though it's it's HIPAA protected. The government will say it has a compelling reason to know what your disability is and why it would apply in this particular case. So your doctor needs to make findings that you are ineligible for the shot for whatever reason, including PEG or otherwise. And the embassy must observe that. Period. Let me ask you this. Have you seen any discrimination, though? I mean, I, I, I know we're talking about this, but this is somebody, you know, say who's coming from, you know, Europe or Australia or yeah. wherever. I mean, is the embassy going to sort of retaliate, slow roll them on no. their visa? They won't. Okay. They can't because any further act of discrimination can put that person who's doing the discrimination into personal jeopardy. Statutes tend to apply to the tortfeasor, the bad actor, as well as the the entity or the legal person that they're representing. So, no, um, the only place that I have seen that kind of discrimination is when people drive across the border from Canada into the United States. About half the time, the the DHS people will um, will simply say, no, we're not we're not going to observe that. They are, of course, discriminating for which they should be held liable. However, um, there is such broad discretion granted the, the immigration people at the border that most people just you know forget about it and go home. I have not seen that yet once as it relates to people flying into the United States. You, you give your doctors no, and if necessary, a legal opinion um, signed by a lawyer and uh, the air carriers, they, they tend to observe those. But you still got to go through the embassy or the consulate. If you need, yeah, if you need a, if you need a visa. Okay. But that, um, you know, that happens only in some of the cases because a lot of people have had visas for many years and they go in and out. But yes, if they need to go to the consulate, they have an absolute right. And in that case, it would be in their best interest to get a letter from you, for example, saying, you know, dear consulate person, this person is availed to the rights, um, not just under the ADA, but under the country's rights where they happen to be at the time, where that consulate sits. Again, they're universal rights. We're trying to provide, you know, as part of this seminar, practice guides for people. Uh, and uh, you have some materials on your website, correct, that that assist people in this? Yeah, we do. Um First and foremost, Disabled Rights Advocates is our law firm. It really is just a portal for people to come and visit. Where we have a lot of uh, materials is at VaxChoice, V-A-X-Choice.com. VaxChoice.com. With two, two, two X's. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a, you know, it's a huge issue. Um, what other areas do you see this uh, as, as being uh, really important to, to use? practicing your rights. Let me, let me express this. Our firm does discrimination work all day, every day. And out of all the various forms of discrimination, religious um, is almost never remedied. The religious discrimination is just horrible. And we hardly ever get to remedy the situation unless we're actually going to file a lawsuit 
which is expensive and time consuming. In terms of disability rights, I can only think of one case that I haven't won. And that's simply because the person didn't want to appeal it. So disability is the winner. Use it, exercise it. I used to take great pride and joy in walking into Target in the middle of all this COVID nonsense, not wearing a mask. And their, you know, their mask Nazi would start screaming at me, where's your mask? Get your mask. And I'd simply say ADA or Americans with Disabilities Act. And the person would invariably apologize and scurry away. Um, if we don't exercise our rights, including the rights of the disabled, then we're, we're forgiving them. We can't do that. We cannot abdicate them. We have to apply our principles and stand for every single right we have, including this one. Let's go back to that simple uh, target example. I, you said a couple things earlier I want to follow up on. One was they can't ask you what your disability is right. unless it's in an employment context. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. your, your medical privacy is protected by HIPAA. That's, they don't that's, get to ask you. That's really, really something. So and if, if they do yeah. ask you, it's a form of discrimination. Right. That's what I was going to say. It piles on then at that point. Right. And what what is the disability that you would that somebody may have uh, that would say you go into Target, you don't want to wear a mask um, like I'm I'm a healthy person. Could I wear a mask? I suppose I could, but I don't want to wear a mask. It's certainly affecting it. You know, it affects me. I don't I really don't like them. So uh, well, let's ask Dr. Vliet. Dr. Vliet would inhaling your gases, your waste gases, interfere with your normal cell growth? Most definitely, because it lowers oxygen and increases carbon dioxide, and it also causes cognitive dysfunction there you and go. cardiac effects. There you go. There's your answer. According to Darby V. Childvine, they cannot require you to wear the mask because it will interfere with your normal cell growth. The but law reads that way. And is that, does that fit the criteria of the six months or longer uh, situation? Uh, I think in light of Darby, it does. So the statute itself says that the, the, any disability includes abnormal cell growth, that, that they, nothing can interfere with your normal cell growth. That's in the statute. Darby actually applied that in, in the context of a, uh, an employment case. However, we've been using it uh, now for many years and you know it works because it's true so the the question is it's a good question how long you know does it take to interfere with your normal, normal cell growth are you disabled again i think darby turns the ada into perspective coverage and then most other countries do if you look at australia's disability law it's very clearly perspective they can't do anything that may make you become disabled that seems to be envisioned, at least by international standards. You know, that's interesting. And I have another scenario. I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. One of the scenarios that, that I wondered about is when you when someone's actually put in the hospital and then they are put on all these drugs and the remdesivir and everything else. Yeah. I mean, at what point does that person actually become disabled due to the treatment? Well, immediately. Uh, yeah, and I think immediately, right? Because they, at the end of the day, those drugs are, are, are scheduled drugs because they are a type of poison, right? Every, every such drug has side effects. And, you know, as long as it is causing or interfering with normal cell growth, and I think you have the basis for a complaint. And then the other thing that I see with that is that if you are disabled and you are at a hospital, then you have a right to an advocate. And we've seen families be barred from taking care of family members. And how would a family that's in that type of situation, you know, vindicate that right? Well, because what, what is the reasonable accommodation that you are seeking by virtue of these protections? A lot of times people will have a medical POA. They'll have a guardian and ad litem or something along those lines. The, the reasonable accommodation you are seeking is the use of that person to represent your interests and be there to assist you. So it's critical that you avail yourself to the ADA. It is critical that you record this, right? Because it, invariably this is going to come down to a contest and it's going to be who's got the best evidence wins. Not only that, but I would highly recommend if people do record these conversations that they tell the other person, by the way, I'm recording you because my lawyer said I should. On the advice of counsel, I'm recording this conversation. I'm telling you, 
this person is disabled or I'm disabled and I want you to understand that. Do you understand that? Yes or no. Right? That becomes very probative evidence. And usually you'll see people's behavior change very quickly. When you, when you let them know this is on the record, you'll be amazed how fast they amend their behavior. That's right. <laughs> Well, Dr. Bleed, I think we've covered this. Uh, what, what else would you like to say, Todd? I, I mean, I, are there some things you'd like to add? I think we've had a, a nice broad overview of this. I think it's given some people some guidance. These are certainly very interesting situations. Yeah, just that, uh, what I'd said before, people really have to practice this, right? It happens to be a very powerful law. It, it's in so much as the government is now tasked with protecting your rights, and they'll actually do that. So use this and use it often. Make your complaints, but make sure it's really important that you notify the people that you are either being discriminated against, discriminated by, um, or, or those who you might presume will do that. It's critical that you get ahead of it and you put them on notice. I'm availing myself to the ADA. And by the way, if they say, well, what's wrong with you? Then what you do is you break out your camera and you say, listen, could you say that a little louder? You know, what did you ask me? Yeah. Gather the evidence. Make your case. Todd, I understand that if someone asks you about, in, for example, let's say the target mask enforcer asks you, well, what's wrong with you? Yeah. That actually there are fines yes. that can be quite significant for that commercial enterprise yes. to ask you about your medical information. Am I correct? You're absolutely correct. You're, and, and even hospitals that are seeking to treat you, um, believe it or not, as odd as it sounds, if you've got a disability that's not in your medical record and, the, and is the basis for your discrimination, um, you have a right not to tell them because they're not your employer, right? There's a distinction between whether they have a right to know or they do not. Only employers effectively have a right to know what your disability is so that they can accommodate you. In case of the public utility, the public place, they must take you at your word because they don't get to know what's wrong with you. So, yes, absolutely, doctor. I think that's important. And I want to emphasize as a physician seeing the impact on patients of constant masking and the damage it causes and the constant test kits that are still EUA, in addition to the damage from the shots, it is urgent that people listen. Listen to what Todd has just said. Exercise your rights and do not comply. Don't just simply roll over and follow these unlawful right. orders that violate the Americans with Disability Act. It's critical that you take a stand. I can't emphasize that enough, Todd. Beautiful. Yep. Yeah, we really, really need to have this understood in a broad way. And I can tell you, 90% of the people don't understand how this works. And I, this is really, this is really powerful stuff, Todd. So thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure. Anything I could do to help. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Warner. We will continue to fight for people's constitutional rights under the law. It's broken all the records. World Council for Health, June 11th, 2022, says for sure the COVID-19 vaccines have been the most deadly medicinal products ever introduced in medicine.